The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek. We are going to continue our special podcast series aimed at supporting our listeners through the coronavirus pandemic, and today we wanted to discuss the power of unifying against a common threat. We also have two very special guests with us today, the amazing creator of Winona Earp, Bo Smith, and the extremely talented illustrator, Laura Ennis. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. Thanks for having us, guys. My pleasure. I was just sitting here hitting all the wonderfully colored buttons. Uh, Kind of like a chimp at a keyboard. (laughs) Can you please tell our audience a little bit about yourselves and some of the projects you've worked on? Let's go ahead and start with you, Bo. I have been professionally writing, and more of that is is comic books, graphic novels, and also video games, as well as columns, and a little television now and then, for 34 years. So, yes, I am as old as dirt, and I've worked for every major and minor comic book publisher that you can possibly name. Before that, I was, and during that, actually, VP of Marketing for Eclipse Comics, Image Comics, Todd McFarlane Productions, McFarlane Toys, Image Comics, IDW Publishing, and another toy company called June Planning. So... I've had my cake and I've eaten it too. Not only can I write for all these companies, but I can promote my own work as well. Nice. Mm-hmm. How about you, Laura? I'm a comic book writer and illustrator. I had my own series, The Dreamer, that went on for about 10 years. And then I was lucky enough to be able to illustrate Winona Earp with Bo Smith when the TV show first started. So that was really awesome. We've known each other forever, so that was kind of like a really cool dream project to finally be able to collaborate on a project. And then a few years ago, I switched over to animation, and I've been working in animation storyboards ever since. I worked on the upcoming Invincible cartoon that'll be coming out from Amazon. I worked at Warner Brothers for a while in their DC superhero stuff. Most recently, I've been working at the Russo Brothers Animation Studio called Octopi, on Magic the Gathering, and then I just directed some animated segments for, they have a um, history of comic books show coming up for Quibi called Slugfest, which is really cool, and I got to direct the animated segments for that. Oh man, that sounds awesome. (laughs) So how are you both holding up and coping during this time? For me, it's not been that much of a change because I've, I've basically worked out of my home or a home office for, again, 34 years with my wife and her job. She's working out of the house now. And, uh, you know, that that took about a week or two of a little wrangling, you know, because I am a definite creature of habit. 
same routines every day. But what the biggest change, and it's odd, is because the changes become via the internet as far as the comic book business going with distribution, diamond distribution, no longer shipping new comic books, retailers, and some of them have been around for more than 30 years that are basically looking at closing doors, not just during the virus, but possibly for good, even as this thing hopefully gets better. I know that's a tragedy. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is this is going to change the landscape of not just comic books, graphic novels and entertainment, but every business that we know in some way. Being a guy that has been around since dinosaurs, it's scary to see because you never think anything like this will happen in your very long lifetime. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a change. Yeah, I got an email from IATSE, the entertainment union, that said, I forget the exact numbers, but it was about of 150,000 members, 120,000 are without jobs right now. So wondering what on earth this will look like when we come back from that. Like There aren't answers. And I feel really fortunate that right now animation seems to be still moving along because we don't have to be on a live set together to work. So things have transitioned to work from home. I'd say of the entertainment industry jobs, we were probably one of the more seamless ones. But still, there's like a lot of uncertainty about what this looks like moving ahead, for sure. LA went on lockdown, I think, earlier than anywhere else, except probably Seattle and New York. And so I was working from home beginning of March. And uh, I think for the first couple of weeks, it was really hard because it seemed like most other people I knew were kind of starting to talk about it, but it still felt kind of far off. But we were already like, you know, we went to the farmer's market that weekend. And as soon as we were there, we were like, this is a bad idea. And Mm -hmm. um, just like a lot of anxiety. And so that did definitely like impact working for sure. It's very hard to be creative whenever you're stressed out for the first few weeks, that was really difficult. I was wrapping up Slugfest. So at least that was like business as usual. You know, I took my work from the office to home, but I knew the rhythm of the project. I knew my team. And so I was able to wrap that up. But finding my legs after that took a hot minute, I think, to kind of reorient and uh, be able to be creative again. It's very fortunate that you guys are still working. It's wonderful. You both mentioned that you worked on the IDW comic series, Winona Earp. So let me try and give a brief synopsis of this series. Winona Earp is a supernatural Western horror story that follows the great-great-granddaughter of the legendary lawman Wyatt Earp. With her ancestor's special gun, the Peacemaker, Winona battles a host of supernatural beings, which happens to include these creatures called Revenants, which are essentially reincarnated outlaws that Wyatt Earp killed. How was that for a brief synopsis? <laughs> that, that, that was pretty good. I even <laughs> learned a few things. So we're out <laughs> that, that sums it up. I mean, what I like to do when creating things, especially my own stuff, is take something and add a bit of quirkiness or a certain slant to what's already going on in real life. And in this case, yeah, Winona Earp is a descendant of Wyatt Earp, and he was a real-life character where he did not have any children, so I made her a descendant of an affair that he had as a technical advisor on a Tom Mix movie, which he actually did in real life. Mm -hmm. Not the affair so much, but he was technical advisor on that. So it kind of gave him a lineage to go from there. But she is 
a U.S. marshal, and U.S. marshals hunt down fugitives. They also put people in witness protection program. So just a real basic thing, that's what she does, only it's in the Black Badge Division, which is a covert branch of the U.S. Marshals. And the quirk and the slant is that she does this with paranormal criminals. So if a werewolf is skimming money off the casino that he works at, well, then she goes after him, not a regular U.S. Marshal. And there's an organized crime within the paranormal world. So you've got like vampires and immortals at the top of this because they live forever. So they've got plenty of time to do this. So and then you go down, there's werewolves, there's this, there's that. And probably at the bottom would be something like zombies because they are like red shirts on Star Trek. You know, they're, <laughs> you know, they're going to die. We can use them. They're expendable. Yeah. But I always just use that. And that's the slant. The quirkiness part is, and this is a must for me, and Laura can attest to it, knowing me for so long, I like all my characters, whether they're minor characters, major characters, or the villains, to have a sense of likability to them. Because as a reader, as a viewer, if you do not have an emotional investment in that character, no matter how minor or major they are, then you're not going to come back. Conflicts, those can be done day in, day out. Powers, superpowers, costumes, they've been done and redone. But if you like that character, then you're going to come back because it's just like real life. You're not going to hang out with people that you don't like. Even the mean girl in school or the guy that kind of looked like he might shove you in a locker and stuff, they don't think they're bad. They think they're right, but they don't think they're bad. So if you can show that with your villains when you're writing, then you can maybe not so much like them, but you can at least understand them. So, yeah, the long way around the barn, you ask me a question and I'll I'll take you around a trip there. So there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a very cool idea and it's very fun and it spawned a very beloved television show on the Sci-Fi Network. What do you think it is about this show that connects with so many fans? It's a lot of things, I think, and then we'll, we'll get Laura's catch on this. I think, A, again, all the characters are likable. When I got the Bible and the spec script and the manual for Winona Earp from Emily Andrus, the showrunner and writer on the TV series, being a creator, you know, and owning this thing for, oh, hell, I created it 20-some years ago, and even actually before that in grade school, just a different version, but... I had to stop and tell myself, you're going to take a day. You're going to read all this. And then you're going to take a day before you write anything back, any notes. Because my initial thing is, oh, gee, from little things like she's not blonde. She's not 45 in this. She's 27. Oh, she does this. She does. A lot of it's all different. She, they, she took the basic canvas that I'd given and painted a, a little different story. So I waited a day. And then I realized during that day that in 20 years of writing Winona Earp, I have taken her so far in the direct market of comic books in the comic book graphic novel world. And in 20 years, you're probably going to reach about as many people as you're going to reach. You'll have a base audience, which I did. And my base audience at that point were males ages 15 to 55. And I had them covered. It was great. Mm -hmm. They were you know, great fans and stuff. But I looked at this and I said, Television is her expert field, not mine. So 
she obviously is going to know where to take it, or at least the chances of, of where to take it. So there were, I got to be honest with you, there were only two things in that manual and the script thing that I had changed. And that was it. I said, these two things need to be changed. Other than that, let the dice roll. And Emily, who did Lost Girls before this and other things in uh, television, has a certain, just like in comic books, I know what's going to work. She knows what's going to work in television. She knows what's going to work with her audience. Her audience was totally different from mine. Hers was a lot of females of 15 to 55. Sexual persuasion was all over the board. And that's what followed Lost Girls. So she was able to add that, and not in a huge blatant, look at me, look at me, ring the bell kind of a thing, but just a realistic, this is the way life is. And I'm, mm -hmm. she's going to add her slant and her quirk to it. And by golly, it sure worked. Yeah, diversity is important, man. There's a lot of us no, out there. <laughs> very much. And it took my fan base I went from the titan of testosterone to the emperor <laughs> of estrogen. <laughs> so now I have an audience that's males 15 to 55, and I have a great audience that's female, and it's 15 to 55 as well, sometimes older. So again, in life, I got to have my cake and eat it too. And the neat part is I've gotten the difference is, and, I, and I'll you know, be honest with you, when guys are your fans, it's just like I was in school. They come up to you, you know, there's a smart aleck remark, bang, hitting the shoulder, how are you doing, you know, you moron, oh, I hate you, you know, that kind of thing. Now, with my Winona Earp audience, it's totally different. They are the most respectful, gentle, kind there's been times when we were in hiatus and didn't know if we were going to get a season. They could have attacked people that were not making this happen. They did not. My male audience would have because that's, you know, guys, I'm 65 years old. That's what guys do. That's what we did when I was growing up. If you can't figure out something, well, then you bust it. And this was great <laughs> because they have been just, I mean, it's, I cannot describe it. I'm well. Maybe it's because I'm not used to being treated <laughs> nice by people, and yeah. maybe I don't deserve it. No, but, it is uh, radically different. Yeah, from comic conventions. Just being at the herb conventions, it's an entirely different thing. And I think a big piece of that is the top down. And I would include you in that, not just Emily. There is a kindness and a care for the viewers that comes top down that has been there since the very beginning that then became contagious and a part of the DNA. And I think it also comes from the world that is created. Like it's so centered in relationships. I think at one point I heard Emily say that she pitched the show like based on the Frozen sisters. And if you look at it that way, it makes so much sense because the core of the show is the relationship between Winona and her sister Waverly. And it's this family unit that grows beyond the two of them to the entire cast. And some of my favorite moments are when it grows even beyond the quote unquote good guys. And those lines like you were talking about between good and evil blur. And everyone is a well-rounded person and there's something of value and something redeemable in every character, whether it's like Rosita, the, you know, bad, quote unquote, revenant who turns and betrays everyone. There's still redemption there. 
there is goodness in all of us if we can tap into that. And I think because of that, it resonates with the fans, a lot of them who have felt like outsiders and most of the cast of Winona Earp, they are these oddball outsiders and they make their own family, this idea of found family. And so the DNA of the show has become the DNA of the fan base and created into something that is like completely remarkable and different than anything I've ever been a part of. And I love that you brought up this idea of found family, Laura, because on the psychological side, that's what I see from the fan base. And so I'm a psychologist and I specialize in working with folks with PTSD. And a lot of patients that I see are huge fans of different kinds of shows, Wynonna Herb being a, a really popular one. For a lot of the folks that I work with who are big fans of the show, who are Herpers themselves, they report that to them, the fandom has become like a second family and that seeing the way that the characters are facing monsters has allowed them to see it almost like a metaphor for facing their own monsters, for facing their trauma, for facing their depression, for facing their anxiety, and that they were able to find friends, you know, even if these people live in other parts of the world, just by being a part of this fandom. And, you know, so I think on a psychological basis, this show and this comic book has done so much for the individuals worldwide in helping them to stand up to their own monsters. It's so interesting because characters are so much more interesting when they exist in this gray anyway. And that was something I got from when Bo was talking. We were discussing how Winona Earp has this very loyal fan base. The fans call themselves Erpers and have actually been labeled as very passionate and fierce. In fact, when IDW started having financial troubles recently, Erpers stood up and banded together and fought tooth and nail to keep the series going. They started the hashtag Fight for Winona campaign and essentially secured production for the fourth season. It's just so amazing to see what can happen when humans unite together for a specific goal. What is the power of unity and how can unity, as demonstrated by the Erpers, reflect the current global fight against COVID-19? I think the thing with the Erpers is, and again, I referred to this earlier, they fought and they fought hard, but they did not fight mean. They fought with compassion and they it's fought totally with kindness. True. Yeah. And that goes to show you that that can happen. And I think with the virus going around, it's the same thing. If everybody can do what common sense and their heart tells them to do, then we'll get to that flat point. We'll get to that corner possibly that we can turn. It will give those that are working on the vaccine and every day, whether or it be equipment, masks, and, and eyewear and stuff like that. It will give them the time that they need to do their part as well. Taking what, I don't want to say what the Europers did, but that, that sense of uh, strategy and, and dealing with this. Because when we've got not just our family and our friends at stake here with a virus like this. We've got a lot more that we don't even realize at stake. And it can either change everything we do or we can, you know, be more like uh, water and fluid and adapt to what's being thrown at us and find our ways, the nooks and crannies, to defeat it and make it better. And by defeat, I don't mean in a black and white sense, but how to deal with it, to work for a vaccine like we have in the past with other diseases. Yeah, a lesson to be learned from there, that's for sure. 
Yeah, and I think it's true because, like, it's so easy to feel helpless. And I think I saw that from the fans when the news first broke that production for season four had been delayed. And like, oh my gosh, like this show means so much to me. This family means so much to me. What do I do if this goes away? So you can feel very powerless, right? Like what on earth can I do? But they found so many small ways. Like I'm just going to tweet until Winona Earp is trending worldwide i mean it's just Mm -hmm. like i'm literally 140 characters or what is it now 280 characters at a time gonna talk about something i love on twitter and somehow that really did bring about the change that they were hoping for and if you look at where we're at right now like what can i do like literally the best thing i can do to fight and to help preserve the world and save the lives of people i love and people i don't even know is to stay in my house if i can you know not everyone can some people are out there on the front lines and some are on like auxiliary lines but to do whatever piece of that you can to minimize how this is being spread like it actually is very small and simple things that are going to go a long way in that. So I see that connection too. Absolutely. I'm so glad both of you brought that up because I think unlike many other fandoms out there, which there there's so many wonderful fandoms, but we've seen the absolute impossible from the Erpers, right? As you mentioned that the Erpers were able to do what previously would have been deemed absolutely a miracle not only did they get a certain topic trended right like the topic of bringing Winona back but if I remember correctly they actually banded together to have a billboard in New York Times Square to show their support for the show which I think was a big impetus for bringing the show back isn't that right it was an entire campaign it was Bo do you know the exact number it was hundreds Yes, it was, it was well over 100, yes. <laughs> and there was one point kind of early in the, the campaign where people were sharing stuff and they would make their own fight for Winona Banners. And I reached out to Bo and I was like, Bo, I'm thinking about doing like an image that everybody could use as their Twitter banner. So we're all united. And I was like, would this help or hurt? And you were like, probably a little bit of both. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I did the image with the rainbow because the LGBTQ community is such a big part of Winona Earp Mm -hmm. and all of the Mm -hmm. heroes' hands, they all have their hands together in the center of it. And that became a really cool thing, I mean, to just inject myself into it a little bit, just to then go on Twitter and see everybody had switched their banners over and so many people had switched their icons over that there was, you know, it was like a branding thing. I was like, if we could all give ourselves the same look, but then I would see that image in Times Square over and over again when Arbors would go there live and broadcast live. And there is such a strength in like a shared identity and just being able to show up together and say, here we are, we're here together. This is our symbol and we're fighting for it. And I think that's just like, what is the name of the, is it Big Sign is the name of the company that they were buying all the space on? I'm not positive. Uh, one of the Erpers was attached to that. They worked there. Yeah. So that's, that's where that came from. But I wouldn't, I'm not sure of the name. The Erpers bought so many uh, billboards there that the company got involved too. And then they would start doing special ones for the Erpers. And then when it was all over, they gave like a big congratulations. You did it, guys, and had it in Times Square. So it just was kind of a phenomenon. It was just unlike anything I'd ever seen before. 
And that's the thing. It's people working together to do the impossible and to make it possible. And and that's what I think is happening right now, where people worldwide, all 7 billion of us have a role to play. Very much as you mentioned, Laura, in that image of people kind of putting their hands together. This is all of us worldwide kind of holding hands from a distance from our own homes or from our own locations where we are, but it's all of us facing this one monster together as a planet to make sure that we're all in this battle because as so many TV shows have shown us, as so many comic books have shown us, if we show up together, we can do anything. We were just discussing this idea of unity and this is a global situation. I mean, everybody's in it together globally. I thought of an interesting question. How do you think we can maintain this sense of unity, fellowship, and connection after all is said and done and after we've, you know, kicked this pandemic's ass on a global level? That's going to be a true test. Let's look at it in this scenario. Let's say the vaccine is taken care of or they they know it's not going to come back or it's going to come back. However it may come back or not come back, that's going to be the true test of us. Do we just fall back into what we were doing? Are we going to pick sides? Is an election going to come up? Is uh, football season, baseball season going to come up and distract everyone? We're going to have distractions again. Right now, we don't have a lot of distractions other than this one monster. So we're going to go back to having a lot of little monsters. The thing is, are we going to have the intestinal fortitude to keep our eye on the prize, which is, hey, this worked out. You know, if we all do kind of work together, you know, we can probably get by this and it'll be our kumbaya moment. We'll find out. <laughs> kumbaya. You know? So I cannot predict the future on that, but you know, if we can get little pieces of it and everyone just doesn't break off into typical Facebook feed of you suck, you rule, you know, I rule. We'll see. Um, I will wish I had a good answer for that, but I, I really don't because I'll probably fall or, or go in line, but uh, unfortunately, I can't do that forever. I can I can hope and I can pray that they do, but you know, <laughs> tough question. Lori, you're a lot smarter than I am. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I think on microwaves and like macroways, I'm just thinking about it as a student of history that the unification that came out of the Revolutionary War. And all of these politicians coming together to fight for this common cause. And then as soon as you start the American government, how quickly that devolves into factions. You know, once the common fight is gone and then you can go back to like, oh, here are all the tiny ways in which we disagree that can get blown up into giant ways. I I think it's inevitable that the spirit of unity won't last entirely. But at the same time, I think that we will be utterly and completely transformed and the world won't ever look the same. And what that looks like, I don't know. But, you know, coming out of eras like the Great Depression and things like that, like completely radically transformed the landscape of the entire world. And I think that we're currently in the middle of that. And so I'm definitely curious as to see how that plays out. We don't have a green, like an outdoor space here in L.A. So Mike and I, my husband, <clears throat> we just take walks a lot. It's been raining for like two weeks, but yesterday we finally got to leave the house. It was so glorious. But it's so strange, you know, living in L.A., it's like, man, it's usually like some nannies pushing some carts with babies or people on their morning jog. And that's about what the neighborhood is. And then now it's like people on bikes everywhere, families out on their front lawn just hanging out and talking I saw an adult son and adult father playing catch in their yard yesterday. We're like, where wow. are we? We're all of a sudden in the Like, 
everyone is home. And I think that really good things are coming from it. And it takes like six weeks to make a habit, you know? So I think Mm -hmm. what are the habits that we are forming now as a society that are going to going to stick with us? And I hope some of them are good. You know, I've been FaceTiming with my family a lot more. And to be honest, on a practical level, I live 2000 miles away and that hasn't changed, right? Like I can't see them on a daily basis, period. But all of a sudden now we're FaceTiming all the time. I'm seeing my nieces and nephews so much more. I'm playing card games with my parents and my little sister and her husband. Every Sunday we have like a standing arrangement. And I'm hoping that some of these ways that we're finding to slow down and connect and then also this larger social consciousness of like, here's how my actions impact people that I do know and people I don't know. And it's worth me making my life smaller and more uncomfortable for that to happen. Like America is a very individualistic society. I hope that some of that sticks in our DNA in ways uh, for the better moving forward. Also out of this, I'm kind of hoping everyone becomes a little cleaner. Yeah. I'm really like seeing people wash their hands a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm, I started this social distancing stuff long before this happened. <laughs> and I, I kind of like to, uh, you know, that's the thing. You've got me and my wife. We're two people that live in the same house, been married for 30 some years. You know, everything's good. But she's open arms, hug everybody, trust everybody. And I'm, oh, okay, here's my circle of five friends. And, oh, you want it out? It's a little harder to get out (laughs) than it is in. And Laura can attest to this stuff. So I'm kind of glad to see, like Laura said, the slowdown. You find out who your real friends are and who your acquaintances are. And like I said, like everybody being clean. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I think one way we can also maintain this sense of unity is by maybe changing some of the priorities, especially in this country, right? Maybe make productivity as important as spending time with our family, because it used to be in a lot of companies where it would be productivity is number one, families kind of last, right? And hobbies and and mindfulness activities and, and getting in touch with our loved ones. And so I'm hoping that reprioritizing things will be really helpful. And so perhaps maybe making productivity less important than meaningful social connections would really help us to maintain not only our emotional connection, but also maybe our physical health and our mental health going forward because I think that some individuals, not everybody of course, but uh, some individuals are reporting being less burnt out now because they're finding themselves having more time to dedicate to activities that they have enjoyed. Of course, unfortunately, that doesn't apply to hospital workers and others who are working overtime right now. But I think that having not only kind of a rearrangement of our priorities, but maybe also a monthly like nationwide mindfulness day or family day where people are not obligated to work unless they're emergency workers and they're able to dedicate time to activities that are really meaningful to them. I think creating this sense of balance will be really, really important going forward. I love having my two-hour commute back that I'm not just stuck on the 101 in traffic every day. Uh, That's made a huge difference. Talk about work-life balance. Um, I'm like, at the end of the night, I have the fortitude to cook myself like a healthy dinner instead of to come home and just pass out on the couch and stuff whatever's closest in hand into my mouth. Um, 
yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how many jobs are able to transition to work from home, work remote when this is all done, whether companies will be more willing, especially people with families and things like that to see, you know, oh, this actually can work and see if we're able to maintain some of that. I mean, personally, I love going into the studio and being in that creative environment. So I hope it doesn't go away completely. A lot of people are reporting what a good thing it is to be able to work from home with their families right now. Yeah. This whole situation inspires so many different emotions and something both said stuck with me about monsters and little monsters that are around. And Dr. Scarlett, what are some of the ways you've been coping and seen others cope with some of the monsters of this pandemic, such as anxiety, fear, and loneliness? I think the biggest way is to create this sense of balance between productivity and our mental health. And I think the the best way of doing that is by prioritizing socialization, exercise, and relaxation activities. And cleanliness, like Bo suggested. Yes, of course, and cleanliness. But also by having daily video hangouts with our loved ones. Video actually has a better sense of connection than just a phone call or text message. So when we're in person, right, we can, for most of us who have these capabilities, we can see someone, hear someone, and even though we might not be consciously aware, we also can smell the other person, like I'm not saying in any kind of <laughs> gross way, but you know, and if we're hugging them, we, we also have a sense of touch. So we're engaging most of our senses when we see someone in person. The fewer of these senses are involved, the less connected we feel to somebody else. And so if we could do a video session where we can see and hear somebody again for people that are able to see and hear, we have a stronger sense of connection to the individual that we're contacting than if we're only talking on the phone or only texting. And so I think one of the best ways to fight these monsters like loneliness, anxiety, and depression is to establish these points of connection. So having maybe daily catch-up sessions where we can spend time with our friends or family or maybe even other people who like similar things as us that maybe we don't know as well. Maybe starting some kind of video session for other herpers, for example, to just have uh, episode by episode discussion of the series or issue by issue discussion of the comic books where we can hang out with other people. We could have virtual lunches, for example, with people or virtual dance parties. I, I have to chime <laughs> in because I was just invited to a online poker tournament and I am super excited about that, reconnecting with some <laughs> friends and having some fun. There you go. And, you know, and we can stream episodes of our favorite shows together. And so the idea is to socialize and step outside of our comfort zone and also to make time for activities that are really restorative for us. You know, again, like resting, for example, exercise and to give ourselves the permission to not finish everything that we need for that day. It's okay if we're a little bit less productive right now. There's a pandemic going on. So mm -hmm, it's okay mm -hmm. if we don't finish the dishes or if we don't finish that report. Before we start wrapping this show up, I just wanted to ask each of you, is there anything else you wanted to say towards someone who might be struggling out there today? And we can go ahead and start with Bo. Oh, Thanks. <laughs> this, you, you brought a lot of it with, with the virtual and the, using the video and stuff. One of my frustrations is people that it used to be email, but now it's text. Everyone wants to text. No one wants to talk. When I was building my career in this business, not only as a writer, but on the marketing end, every day 
I was on the phone with people, oh gosh, good eight hours a day. I mean, on the phone and having conversations. Yes, we would meet at the conventions, at the seminars and stuff. We put the face to face. But let me tell you, I have seen such a drop, not only in the ability to converse with people, but to actually know what they're saying because of of texting, and I'm not just getting on a text rant, but the inflection of someone's voice, their emotion, what they're going through, you find out a whole lot more. It's not just so quick. And Mm -hmm. I have found that with technology, one of the good things about technology is with the video. And you can, I've done tons of podcasts and stuff where it's video, and I've done interviews where it's video, and those nine times out of 10 turn out so much better for the simple reason you can see that person's expression. You can see how they're doing. If you do this on a regular basis, then you're going to end up knowing that person. And even though you may meet that person maybe once in your life, you're going to be great friends. I mean, Laura and I are a good example. We met, oh gosh, she can tell you how many years ago. And she was right out of uh, art school. <laughs> and she was just a child. I was an old. <laughs> I mean, Laura, her and Mike, are, her husband are like family to us. And always have been. And that wasn't a a long period of building up. It was because we talked on the phone. And Laura and I would talk a lot on the phone in the afternoons when she would be drawing (laughs) and I should have been working. But (laughs) she will tell you, it makes a difference. And we need more of that. And you're 100% right that if we have these online visual get-togethers after this, I think it will help out a whole lot. And any of the loneliness, depression and stuff that we feel or have felt, it will help melt that away or at least help make it better to cope with. How about you, Laura? As someone who deals with anxiety, that was definitely enhanced at the beginning of this. Something that really helped me kind of turn a corner with it. I think one just time is it just becomes more routine and more normal. Some of that has like subsided. But another thing was, kind of taking control over my social media intake because I think it becomes very easy to become overwhelmed when you just hear all of these voices coming in, like just compulsively checking my news feed or, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, I'm connected to thousands of people I don't know, which most of the time is pretty incredible because it's just expanded my worldview and allowed me to hear voices from people who have much different experiences than me. And I've really treasured that. But All of a sudden, now you're hearing lots of stories of loved ones who are sick, people who are dying, the fears and anxieties of the entire world, a lot of anger and confusion. And it was just really completely overwhelming for me. And also, the very early part of this, just like the memes going around, like, well, Shakespeare wrote his greatest plays during the plague. You should too. I'm like, we've we've been trapped at home for like a week. Like I can't even, you know, be freaked out for, you know, a few days. Like I've got to, I'm, I'm, it's already stressful enough to try to write my magnum opus. But now you throw a world pandemic on top of it. I just had to kind of switch gears and become very intentional about what kind of connection I was going to have moving forward and then to be choosing the kinds of things Bo's talking about, to be choosing actual connection and using that time to actually reach out to my closest friends and my family and spend it that way in a way that edifies me instead of like keys up my anxiety and kind of limiting my news intake and things like that. And and I also kind of turned a corner when I, instead of, <clears throat> I don't know how many times I sat down to like work on the next chapter of my novel and like nothing was coming out. 
I just decided, you know what, I'm going to do like there's some early stuff in the early chapters that I didn't have figured out. I need to go back and rework that. I'm just going to do an edit like I can handle an edit right now, you know, or here's a sketch that's been on my iPad for months. I haven't touched it. Like, how about I just ink it? I can I can trace right now. I have the mental capacity for that. And when I started doing these like little tiny things creatively, I rediscovered how healing it is to get lost in the creative process. You know, the like meditative Zen like state you create when you're just in the zone on a piece of artwork. And I didn't have the energy to create something new, but I had the energy to just like, even if it's like an adult coloring book or something like that, just there's something very healing about art. And so it'd been a very long time since I'd experienced art in that way. I'm a pretty ambitious person. So usually I make something in order to get to whatever that next goal is. But to just kind of reconnect with my just love of the thing in and of itself, just as a, as a place of escape, hadn't really been in that place since I, I don't even know how long it's been years and years and years. So that's been really healing for me to uh, just kind of take the pressure off and realize that most of like my favorite works were created after the storm. Like J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings after he lived through the trenches in World War One. He didn't write it in the trenches. And you can go through example after example after example of that, where it's like in the moment you experience the thing fully, but after it passes, the artist is the one who gives voice to that experience and that shared humanity. And so I think right now the deepest thing that we can do is to just experience it deeply and connect with other people so that when the time is right, we'll give voice to this experience in a way that is meaningful without the pressure of like having to figure it all out right now because we're not far enough away from it right now to mm. to make sense of it. So take the pressure Beautiful. off, guys. Well okay. said. Well said, yeah. both of you. And I just wanted to add for anyone out there who's struggling right now, know that you're not alone. Your experiences are valid and you're allowed to feel exactly how you feel. So reach out, connect, create, and give yourself a break because it's okay. It's okay if you're not as productive as you normally are and you're already contributing. Everything that you do on a daily basis is helping to stop this virus. You're already contributing to saving the world. And so thank you for being wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for being on our show today. Can you please tell our audience where they can find you on social media? On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Bo Smith Ranch. And on Facebook, you just type in Bo Smith, look for the ugliest person, and that will be me. <laughs> I'm not really on Facebook anymore. You can find me there, but it might be months before I accept your friend request because I don't use it. But you can find me on Instagram. I'm Laura, L-O-R-A dot Innes, I-N-N-E-S dot art. On Twitter, I'm Laura Innes. I wish they were the same, but it's too late now. So <laughs> it's usually where you'll find me, Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you both so much for being on our show, and thank you all for tuning in to this special episode of Superhero Therapy. Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. Stay safe out there, everybody, and remember that you are a superhero. <laughs>